0: Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I hold no definitive knowledge on the topics I talk about. If you notice an error, I'd very much appreciate being advised. You can email me at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. Also, I swear, maybe a bit more than I should at sometimes. Anyway, nothing is bleeped, so listener discretion is advised. Very serious situation here in Hawaii earlier this evening. The uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami. The sky turns on. black as giant tornadoes touchdown from Nebraska to Texas. Hello, I'm Ruby, and this is episode 49 of Living Through Extinction, a short, to-the-point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and more. I still don't know if I'm going to do anything special for episode 50 or if it's just going to be a normal show. Guess I'll have to figure that out soon, though. I have broken 4,000 unique downloads, however, so am preparing a prize package for when it reaches 5,000, at which point a draw will be done. So far, I have one item to represent the skeptical segment and three items representing the environmental segment. Still have to find something fun to represent wildlife, plant life segment. And of course, there'll also be a bunch of little stickers and pins and decals and things like that. But that's still a ways away, so I'll reveal those products closer to draw time. If you have joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. Starting off with something really fucking shitty. Are you all aware that the Taliban have replaced the Ministry of Women's Affairs with the Ministry of Vice and Virtue? Do you think these things can't happen here? Could never happen here? Well, you're wrong. Google pictures of Iran in the 70s. It only took a few decades to go from miniskirts to what we think of today. What changed over there? Religion was given governmental rule. Division of church and state became obsolete. There are people in both Canada and the US fighting every day to make that the case right here in North America. Canada shot them down pretty good in the last election, but the US is still in very big trouble. The ironic thing is most of the politicians and voters on that side have no idea what they are actually doing. They don't have the foresight to see what this will mean for their grandchildren. They just want what they want and they want it now. If we in Canada do not continue to beat out the Christian nationalists, we too could someday be headed to very similar downfalls. Those who say the Bible should dictate laws have obviously not read the Bible. If you think it's full of do not kill and love thy neighbor, then either you haven't read it or you've only read those parts you were told to read. Religious nationalists are the absolute downfall of free society. Just look at the history in other countries we have to continue to stop it if we mean it when we say we want to defend our freedoms. And I'm talking about actual freedom, not that bullshit Americans call religious freedom that only actually gives rights to people of one belief system and leaves everyone else out. Religious nationalism is bad for any free society. Religious nationalism is the opposite of freedom. How is it so many people get this so fucking backwards? It doesn't matter what the belief system is. It doesn't belong in government in a free society. I don't care if it's Christian nationalism, Hindu nationalism, Islamic nationalism. They are all the same in the end. They all remove the freedoms of most individuals and give all the power to a specific religious group. So Christian nationalists, this is a question for you. Do you really wanna be like the Middle East? Because that is what you are fighting for, even if you don't have the capacity to realize it right now. Think about it for just a minute while taking in the information available from other nations which have done just that. Just what you're trying to do. Be skeptical, damn it. So, like probably most of you out there, I was aware of last month's oil spill off the coast of Southern California. The two things I find most interesting are the delays in stopping it and the delays in the reporting of the leak, and especially what they have reported since being able to send divers down to check things out. But first, the pipeline in question was bringing oil in from offshore platforms. This massive spill set more than 126 gallons of oil into the ocean, the largest such leak since 2015. The spill was much worse than it might have been if proper procedures had been followed. It was 2.30 in the morning when the alarm went off that the pressure in the pipeline had dropped, which is the first indicator of a leak. Everything should have been shut down at that point until things could be figured out. The authorities also should have been contacted immediately following. The company that owns the pipeline has a spill response plan. This plan calls for the immediate notification to authorities of any kind of spill. They failed on both parts. The pipeline was not shut off until 6.01 a.m., three and a half hours after the alarm was sounded. And get this, some CEO said that they weren't even aware of the spill until an oily sheen was spotted on the water surface at 8.09? What? That doesn't even make any sense the alarm told you there was a leak and you did shut things down at six yet you're saying you had no idea that a leak had actually occurred until eight what the fuck man but we know why they're trying to spin this narrative now right they have to make up some excuse because even after they shut everything down finally stopping the flow into the ocean they took another three hours to contact authorities The U.S. Coast Guard's National Response Center for oil spills should have been contacted immediately as per their own spill response plan. Someone dropped the ball big time. The latest part of the story that I found so interesting is what was discovered when divers were sent down to investigate. I don't recall a leak being caused in this way before. Of course, there could always be a past story I missed. This is an ocean shoreline, which means ships are constantly coming in and out. Cargo ships are given coordinates of where they're permitted to drop anchor so as not to damage things like, say, oil pipelines. The divers traversed the 30 meters down into the depths and found the pipeline severely bent out of place. I saw it described as a pulled bowstring and then looked at a diagram of the displacement and that description actually fits. A 4,000 foot section has been displaced about 105 feet and has a 13-inch split along the side, obviously where the oil was flowing out from. The only hypothesis at this time is that an anchor was lowered where it should not have been, and that anchor hooked onto, split open, and bent and dragged the pipeline as it slid along the sea bottom. At the time of my looking into this, the offending ship had not been identified. I'm not sure how they would go about it, but if they could figure out who's responsible for the damage, I'm interested in what would be next? Is this just a big oopsie? Or is this a punishable crime? I don't know enough about environmental and seafaring laws to comment there. This one's a fun story. A kid entered a bug collection in a state fair for his 4-H patch or something like that. And one of the bugs he had displayed triggered the judges to contact officials, leading to both state and federal investigations. The collection was entered at the Kansas State Fair and won a blue ribbon for it too. He did properly identify all the insects he had collected, but he had not realized that one of them was something to be reported. The spotted lanternfly is one of the more beautiful insects when its wings are spread. Take a Google for a pic. The outer layer of the wings have spots, and then the next layer have stripes, and then towards the middle, it's bright red with black spots. They're really striking, but they also suck. It's assumed they hitched over on a shipping container from Asia when they first appeared in Pennsylvania in 2014. From there, they ended up in New Jersey, then to Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, New York, Connecticut, Ohio, and Vermont. While they don't use their beautiful wings for much flying, they're more hoppers than flyers, they are still very good at getting around by hitching rides on cars and campers and continue to spread in that way. And now it's doing its damage to crops across these states. I actually saw the term dangerously destructive used to describe them. They're destroying hardwood trees and several crops, including grapes, apples, walnuts, and hops. Several U.S. industries based around these crops have been suffering severe losses. Even the waste of these beautiful insects is an issue, as it encourages a fungal growth called sooty mold, which can spread over a plant and block off the leaves from the sun's rays, eventually killing it. So yeah, this is a pretty bug, but a very bad pretty bug. This state fair display was the first report of one in this area, which is more than 850 miles away from the nearest known insects of these kind. The judges at the fair, while rewarding the kid the blue ribbon, also made sure to contact the U.S. Department of Agriculture about the feared insect. Investigations ensued. So far, there have been no other sightings, and it may be that there are no more. The bug was dead when the boy found it. It was just there on his porch one morning, so he identified it and added it to his collection. It was May when he found it and they are known to not emerge until July. The insect was also said by the investigators to be somewhat worn and desecrated. It's likely it died the year before and was stuck in or to a camper and blown around until it came to the boy's porch. The spread of the spotted lanternfly is a real threat and people can help out just by checking their campers and vehicles before leaving or going home from a vacation. This is requested and recommended by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In Pennsylvania, the agriculture officials urge residents to please kill them on site. Imagine being that boy, though. He caused all this ruckus and investigation just by picking up a dead bug. Should remember that particular state fair forever. For this episode, I looked into antibiotic resistances. Everywhere I look on the topic, I am seeing the term One Health antibiotic resistance is called a one health issue. Apparently the term one health refers to a situation where the health of humans, animals, and the environment are all affected by something. The CDC calls antibiotic resistance one of the most urgent threats to public health. If we care at all about the generations to come after us, then we have got to get this shit straightened out. The long-term damage, if antibiotics and antifungals are not used properly, can affect so many different things. For people, it will save lives, but its overuse can cause kidney damage and photosensitivity. It doesn't differentiate between good and bad bacteria, so kills off the good, necessary bacteria, along with the bad. Sometimes it kills the good bacteria responsible for protecting us from fungal infections. This can result in the development of such infections in the mouth, throat, or vagina, now requiring an antifungal to go with those antibiotics. And antifungals aren't much better. There's evidence of toxic effects on aquatic organisms from antifungals getting into the environment, and they aren't just used as medications, they're in shampoos, soaps, toothpaste, and more. The main issue with overuse or improper use of antibiotics is, of course, resistance. Antibiotic resistant bacteria are now found all over the world. We're so used to being able to treat infections, but these new resistant forms are very hard to treat. In fact, sometimes they just can't be treated, period. And if it is treatable, it may require an extended hospital stay, followed by follow up visits to the doctor. If you're an American, this could bankrupt you. It's getting so the choices are death or bankruptcy. Yay! And I'm not exaggerating, people are dying. The annual U.S. healthcare costs associated with antibiotic resistant bacteria. Are over 4.6 billion dollars. At least 2.8 million people in the US contract an antibiotic resistant bacteria or fungi every year and more than 35,000 die from them. In the EU the number of deaths from antibiotic resistant bacterial infections is just a little less around 33,000 per year. Today we have many different antibiotics but it all began with penicillin in 1941. As new forms come out, new antibiotic-resistant forms of different bacteria evolve. I found an interesting list of 12 drugs developed from 1941 through 2015. It shows the years they were developed and the years that resistant forms of bacteria were found. Staphylococcus appears to be the most versatile, evolving immunity to four of the 12 drugs listed. Gonorrhea came next, having evolved resistance to three of the 12 drugs. To view this list for yourself, go to cdc.gov slash drugresistance slash about dot html. It's simple to follow and very interesting. Now, this resistance isn't just happening in us. This is a one health problem. Resistance is popping up in nature as well, and that can bring on its own set of problems. Antibiotic or antifungal residues help to increase the population of resistant bacteria in nature by keeping the pressure on for resistance to develop. Increased microbial resistance in the environment has been shown to create new super microbes, which are sometimes damaging to certain fragile ecosystems. When absorbed by plants, it can interfere with their physiological processes, such as photosynthesis. When wastewater was taken from downstream of a pharmaceutical plant producing primarily antibiotics, different life forms were placed in it to study their effects. The fish embryos had definite development issues, most dying within 24 hours of development. They also observed algae growth stopping altogether. In crops, antibacterial or antifungal residues can encourage a mold called fumigatus. It makes people with weakened immune systems really sick, and resistant forms have been found in crops in the US. In livestock, some resistant bacteria can spread between animals and people. Salmonella heidelberg bacteria, for example, can make both people and cattle sick. There's a real chain reaction here where it starts with overcrowded animals. Overcrowding equals increased chances of infections equals higher antibiotic usage. The antibiotics and antibiotic-resistant bacteria end up in the meat we eat and the waste used to fertilize crops, some soaking into the soil. Fruit, vegetables, and other produce have shown positive results for resistant bacteria because of it. From these fields, much of it is also running off into waterways as well. University of Minnesota researchers detected antibiotics common to both healthcare and veterinary care in low levels in lakes, rivers, and streams throughout Minnesota. The U.S. Geological Survey found it in groundwater in both non-agricultural and urban areas. Groundwater which is the drinking water for many rural areas. Many residues are being emitted from hospitals and municipal wastewater treatment plants. When we take them as drugs, our bodies do not use it all up, so our waste is also contributing to the buildup. Oceanside aquaculture is also a huge contributor to antibiotics and antibiotic resistance bacteria in our waterways. To learn more about aquaculture, both oceanside and on land, listen to my last episode of Living Through Extinction, number 48. I literally just covered it. Thankfully, there are lots of things we can do to mitigate the risks associated with antibiotic resistance. When it comes to prescriptions, take them exactly as prescribed, always finish them and never take someone else's or let someone take yours. Also don't flush them down the drain or toilet. This goes for veterinary medicine as well. And vets also have to be careful not to overprescribe. and pet owners also need to make sure their pets follow all the same prescription rules as I just mentioned for humans. Another point about taking antibiotics when needed, I never knew this one before. If you are on antibiotics, avoid fruit, fruit juices, dairy, and alcohol for three hours after taking a dose. Some foods stop the effectiveness of antibiotics. Grapefruit juice, for example, stops the body from breaking down and correctly absorbing the medication. I wonder how many other medications this may be the same for. Seems like something that should be more common knowledge. Maybe it is, and I just never came across it for some reason. Don't take antibiotics when you have a common cold without an infection. It's not doing anything for you. Only use when necessary for bacterial infections, but avoid frequent or extended use unless necessary. There are exceptions. I have a friend who was saved thanks to daily intravenous antibiotics she received after a presumed harmless bite from a dog that left a microscopic piece of something really bad behind and she almost lost her fucking hand. There are instances where extended frequent use is going to be the only thing that can be done. Another thing we can do is remove it from those food supplies where it still remains. Try to stick with meat not treated with antibiotics, if you have the option. In the U.S., look for a pair of labels. The USDA Process Verified Label along with one of the following. NAE, which stands for No Antibiotics Ever, Raised Without Antibiotics, or No Added Antibiotics. Any one of these combined with the USDA process verified label means the animal this food came from never received antibiotics. If we lose the ability to make use of antibiotics at some point, future generations are going to be in really big trouble. Surgeries will become more lethal. Giving birth will become more lethal. Mortality rates of babies and children would climb. Small, used to be insignificant wounds would once again be taking lives. People receiving organ transplants, people on dialysis, anyone with increased infection risks, so people in cancer care. All of these people are dependent on antibiotics for survival. If the infections they contract can no longer be treated with what we have, they're screwed. Antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections are not just a human problem. We're all connecting with the plants, animals, and environment when it comes to this issue. For the sake of future generations, we have to start using antibiotics more responsibly going forward. Ending things on a positive note, the world's largest factory created to take carbon out of the atmosphere and store it away has been activated. The Orca factory went online last month, which was September as I record this. Two companies came together to make this one happen. The Swiss startup Climeworks AG and the Icelandic carbon storage firm, CarbFix. The technology used is called direct air capture. The factory has eight large containers which use high-tech filters and fans to extract the CO2 from the air around it. The chemical filters capture the CO2 as air passes through them. This CO2 is released when heated and generates a stream of gas. This stream of gas travels through pipes to nearby wells owned by CarbFix. In these wells, the gas is mixed with water, and the resulting carbonated water is pumped into the bedrock. In Iceland in particular, the bedrock is mostly volcanic basalts. These contain minerals that will react with the carbon dioxide and form calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate is a white crystal, which is also the main ingredient in limestone. So far, this sounds like a pretty good system. And scientists say that direct air capture technology is going to be absolutely vital to assist in limiting global warming. To top it off, they are located next to and connected to a geothermal power plant, which you could learn more about in Living Through Extinctions episode thirty one, where the research topic was geothermal energy. This factory is running completely on renewable energy. Now, the main drawback at this time is that it's a young technology and still very expensive, of course. It costs between ten and fifteen million to build this one, and it still costs the orca about six to eight hundred dollars to sequester one ton of carbon dioxide. Only increased interest, investment, and ultimately scale will reduce costs in the end. The good news is that they don't have a shortage of companies looking to offset their outputs by paying $1,200 per tonne. These companies are what will keep these types of plants profitable. This new plant is expected to pull 4,000 tonnes of CO2 out of the atmosphere per year, which I read somewhere would be equivalent to taking 870 cars off the road, which, hey, not bad. Even better news is that this is a trend that's growing. There are currently 15 other direct capture plants around the world and they are capturing more than 9,000 tons of CO2 every year altogether. More locally, Canadian company Carbon Engineering has been creating jobs with its own capture system. The technology it's building captures CO2 from the air and stores it as compressed gas or creates a near carbon neutral fuel. They're building in the southwest U.S. somewhere. This system will be news when it gets going, assuming it works properly. It is expected to remove more than 1 million tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere every year. The same job as 40 million mature trees could do. And we need all the CO2 removal we can get, so I saw this as some good news for sure. And I'm done. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. May your health and sanity be replenished daily. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for the musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you'll return to join me on my learning adventure in two weeks when I guess I'll be celebrating 50 episodes. I wonder how many that is on my own. 38, I think. Anyway, y'all take care. If you enjoyed what you just heard and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe, rate, comment, like, and share on your favorite podcast apps and all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter. There's also a Patreon under Living Through Extinction where you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more. If you have any questions, corrections, comments, or suggestions, or even just to say hi, email Extinction at gmail.com. Or send me a message through one of the social medias. to Texas, apocalyptic scenes as twisters...